Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing. Like, why do clothes suck now? And is Paw Patrol copaganda or is it not that deep? And like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hey, witches. In this episode, broadly, we talk about PTSD as a diagnosis, different types of trauma, and specific symptoms of stress, depression, and anxiety. Of particular note are discussions around child abuse, neglect, parental death, nightmares, and flashbacks. We also mention rape and eating disorders, as well as physical and emotional abuse. Please take care of yourselves and skip this episode if that's what you need. And feel free to check out some helpful resources of support from our guest, Addie, that you can find in the episode notes. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And... Hannah, can you tell me about t-shirts? I just, I just have a hankering to hear about t-shirts. Just in general or? Like, what are your thoughts on, I don't know, like, which please t-shirts? Yeah, wow, what a great question, Marcel. (laughs) So, the reason I wrote that incredibly effective line into the script is, it's what I want to talk about in the sorting chat. And that is that I made us a new merch store. Ooh, tell me about it. So I got an email from somebody at TeePublic. And TeePublic is doing this thing where they reach out to podcasts and work with them to, like, build their own specific shops. And I was like, that sounds fun. Let's do it. (laughs) How appropriate. So I've taken down our red bubble shop, which was the completely unadvertised place where we used to sell our three t-shirt designs. <laughs> nice. And I've moved those three t-shirt designs over to Tee Public, so you can get them there now. And you can also get them on like mugs and stickers and other things. But also you can curate other cool designs that are on Tee Public. So I put other people's designs on our shop. We get a cut. <gasps> we 
we get a cut. So we support other people's work and we are financially compensated for that. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. It's great. And also they have their own design team who is currently working on some additional designs for us. Whoa. And so I have asked them to make us a marginalia shirt <gasps> and a blast ended scroots or queer culture shirt. Oh my God. This is incredible. I am speechless with excitement <laughs> about marginalia in particular. <laughs> I know, right? We're I mean, we're gonna see. Well, we'll see how the design is when it comes through, but I'm just really excited. <laughs> anyway, the URL is like long and has numbers in it. And so what I'm going to say is that the link is on our social media and in the episode show notes and on our website, ohwitchplease.ca. So you can find it all over the place. Go check it out and like bookmark it and check it regularly so that you can see whenever I put a new design (laughs) on there. Let's move on. We have a wonderful guest joining us today, but before we bring them on, let's make sure we've covered our bases in revision. Great plan, Hannah. I love it. Way back in Season 1, Episode 5, we had friend of the podcast, Dr. Lucia Lorenzi, on to talk with us about trauma. She introduced us to trauma theory as a way of thinking about narrative. We looked at the many forms of trauma that characters experience, from Harry's life with the Dursleys to the ongoing impact of the very recent war on the adults at Hogwarts. And then Lucia gave us some tools for thinking about them. She introduced us to some key ideas around how trauma and narrative intersect, including a focus on gaps, inconsistencies, and unreliable narration as sites where trauma lives. And that is straight out of the episode summary because I can barely remember what I had for breakfast, let alone a conversation we had one full calendar year ago. (laughs) And you know why that is, Marcel? Why? It's because my brain has been simmering in a slow bath of trauma for over a year and a half, and it literally doesn't work the way it used to. Oh, how unfortunate that you and your province haven't gone back to normal like me and mine. Just kidding. That's not how trauma works. It's also not how pandemics work. Funny that. Funny that. Okay, so this is all really interesting because I feel like Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix also points to a lot of the ways that trauma impacts how people think and behave and, like, process new information and stuff. Like Mrs. Weasley's reaction to the Boggart or Snape's pretty legit anger when Harry sees his memories in the pensive (laughs) or how damn angry Harry is for most of this book. Honestly, I feel like there's whole passages where Rowling just put the caps lock on and went for it. Just hit it and go. Just so much shouting. And then we've got all of these other, like, the introduction of the idea that you can only see Thestrals if you've seen somebody die. The revelations about Neville and his parents. Like, totally. all of this new stuff is happening in this book. And what I think is really interesting about the Order of the Phoenix from the perspective of trauma is that 
In book one, we mostly had to focus on how trauma is being like sublimated, how it appears as gap and silence, because the text itself didn't seem to have any space for the reality of that trauma. Right. So we had to sort of piece through and be like, what might be under the surface here? But this book has a lot of space for trauma. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like... The characters don't. Like, in the world of Harry Potter, I don't think we are seeing people dealing with mental health very well. Certainly not in any kind of, like, organized fashion. Certainly not. (laughs) But the book itself, like, the number of pages that are committed to actually playing out the degree to which these characters are themselves deeply traumatized is... I think, higher than any previous book we've looked at. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. Yeah. I wonder then if it would be useful for us to think about what trauma actually looks like as a diagnosis. If only we knew a psychologist that we could talk to. Wow, Marcel, what a coincidence. (gasps) Do we? You want to meet our guest? I do. I really do. Everyone better be on their best behavior because today we have a guest teacher for Transfiguration class. Yay! Dr. Addie Marion's pronouns she, her, hers is a postdoc in PTSD. She has her PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Minnesota, and her research focuses on trauma, PTSD, and resilience, especially when thinking about systemic oppression. And she is naturally, a Ravenclaw. Welcome, Addie. Hi, it's really exciting to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. I am so excited to learn about this because it is truly an area about which I know nothing. Well, thank you for letting me tweet at you and slide into your DMs (laughs) about it. (laughs) Okay, so we're thinking in this episode about reading the way characters are behaving as symptomatic of PTSD, as a sort of sign of the fact that they are dealing with trauma. And I wonder if maybe we could just start off with, like, a history of how people in your discipline, like folks in psychology, have thought about what PTSD is. One of the things that... I think is going to be a little interesting talking about this from a psychology perspective versus like English literature, humanities-esque perspective is sort of the different ways theory works in psychology. We both got so excited. Ooh, a meta conversation about the use of theory in various disciplines. (laughs) Well, because even talking about diagnoses, means we're sort of already working within a theoretical framework of a more medicalized model. And then on top of that, you're going to have the various theories of like what PTSD is and how to treat it. So it it might feel a little different than how y'all usually talk about theory. Can I ask a quick question? Yes. So does that mean that a diagnosis is theoretical? Yes. Holy shitballs. 
So when I took my psychopathology class, which was basically like, what are diagnoses? One of the real focuses was on how a lot of them are arbitrary. So as we talk about PTSD, yes, there's a a research grounding for everything, but when it comes to it, it's like, well, why do you need two from this criteria versus one from this? Or with depression, why do you need five out of the nine criteria? That's where it sort of becomes arbitrary. And then you have some theories of counseling and therapy that step away from diagnoses entirely, except for the fact that you can't actually, when you're doing clinical work, because you have to bill insurance and insurance doesn't like being like, this person just needs to talk. (laughs) You're writing this like long thesis about the arbitrary nature of diagnosis and how the medicalized model fundamentally alienates us from the actual work of talking to people. And they're like, No, you need to check a box. (laughs) Yes. And then you have differences between how research will look at things. So like the way you do diagnosis in a clinical work. So I do clinical work and research. Um, The way you do diagnoses in clinical settings is often very different from how you do it in research and how you do it in research is different depending on the kind of research you're doing. Basically, the example and metaphor, I or more example than metaphor, but I have friends who study organic chemistry and everything they study is physically there. If they wanted to, they could touch it. Like they shouldn't because it's like highly carcinogenic, but like they could. (laughs) With most psychological research, you can't touch what you're studying. You're studying ideas. And so everything comes down to how you measure it and how you measure it is how you think about it. This is so cool because it sounds so similar to what like we do in the humanities. Like we are also just studying ideas, but in a fundamentally different disciplinary way. This is wild. I'm so excited. And psychology will like get really weird sometimes because it tries to be like a hard science and then it's a social science or a soft science and then it feels bad about itself. It's like... There are like so many papers on like identity crises in psychology about like what the discipline even is. <laughs> so we're not going to ask you to make your science harder, but we are going to ask you to keep doing this very exciting theorizing because I love this thinking about how theory operates in different places. And it is instinctively unsettling for me to suggest diagnosing a fictional character. And at the same time, I think recognizing that things like PTSD are themselves theories that are based on the interpretation of observed characteristics reminds us that it is also a form of reading. And in that sense, it's interesting to think about a novel as an opportunity to like test out theories of how we read people's behavior. I was trying to reread the whole novel and for like, so long. which did not happen. I got through like 14 chapters, especially like the first two chapters. I was putting a sticky note every time I saw a PTSD symptom. And I was like, oh, I, A, I'm going to run out of sticky notes. <laughs> and B, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> then I just wrote little chapter summaries of all the PTSD symptoms. 
Incredible. So tell us a bit about PTSD. Where does this idea come from? What is it? How has our thinking about it changed over the years? Yeah. So PTSD is sometimes considered a newer diagnosis. It didn't really get introduced as PTSD until the DSM-3. So the DSM stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and it's put out by the American Psychiatric Association. So that's psychiatrists, not psychologists, but psychologists still use it. So that's where like PTSD, as we now call it, PTSD started. But if we look back in the history of psychology, we still see that people were thinking about how going through bad things does things to Mm. you. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, we can see evidence of people thinking about this in literature, in sort of culture. But really in psychology and psychiatry, we start seeing this as people were thinking about soldiers. So World War I, you have shell shock. So people initially thought like, oh, people are behaving this way because they were exposed to intense artillery. And then later it was like, no, we think it's just like the stress of combat. I'm going to just interrupt with literature briefly. This is one of the interesting conversations about Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, which is one of the characters in Mrs. Dalloway has shell shock. And part of the way people think about Mrs. Dalloway as part of the larger project of modernism is that it is attempting to find a literary form to articulate new theories of the mind. So that that's a sort of moment where people are starting to say like, oh, we're understanding new things about how our minds work and how they are impacted by external factors. And she was trying to like bring that into how she actually wrote from various characters' perspectives. Virginia Woolf, y'all. We did not cover that in AP Lit. I know that we don't need to defend the value and the importance of literature to our listeners, but this is a really great example of why things like literature and the study of literature over the years is really valuable because all of a sudden you're like, we have this diagnosis. How long have people been thinking about this process? How long have people been thinking about this thing? Can I interrupt here really quickly on a very quick tangent? which is one of the most interesting articles we read in my psychopathology class was about whether eating disorders were culturally bound syndromes. And it through literature and history accounts, it was able to trace anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa to determine that anorexia exists across cultures, whereas bulimia does not. And like looking at accounts of how like young girls in like the mid- in medieval times would like sort of compulsively starve themselves and drawing on accounts of saints. So like, yes, in psychology, we like deeply think about literature and history and culture as how we inform our diagnoses. It's such a cool article. Wow. Amazing. I love this. Incredible. Okay, let's keep going. We've only made it to World War One. Oh my God. <laughs> so... What's really interesting about PTSD is that the diagnostic history is basically driven by the experiences of soldiers and wars. And I want us to put a pin in that because when we start looking at treatment, we're going to see something different. But so you have World War I, 
And then there's this history of, you know, there's a brief period of peace. And so interest in shell shock fades. And then you have World War II, which um, was traumatic for a whole lot of people. And so you see these developments of ideas of things like traumatic war neurosis, combat fatigue, battle stress, and gross stress reaction, which were a bunch of different names for the same syndrome, which was characterized by anxiety, intense autonomic arousal. So just like your body's doing a whole lot of things. When psychology says arousal, it means activation. It's not like a sexy thing. Reliving and sensitivity to stimuli reminiscent of the original trauma. And I should say a lot of what I'm talking about right now in the history of PTSD comes from a great article by N.C. Andreasen called Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, A History and Critique. Always cite your sources. Always. (laughs) (laughs) So you get this resurgence of interest in like stress reactions after World War II, thinking about the soldiers who fought in World War II. And also there was a really strong interest in what was going on for Holocaust survivors. So because of the treatment needs escalating after World War I, The first DSM is introduced in 1952. It does not have PTSD, but what it does have is a diagnosis called gross stress reaction, which is a stress syndrome that is, and this is where the trauma is defined, that is a response to exceptional physical or mental stress, such as a natural catastrophe or battle that incurs in people who are otherwise normal And it must subside in days to weeks. Oh. Oh, I'm out because not otherwise normal and never subsiding. Yeah. And this is a really big contrast because in the current conceptualization of PTSD, symptoms have to last for at least a month. If it's less than a month, it's acute stress disorder. Okay. Okay. Why did that change? That's a good question. What we see is basically this fluctuation of interest in stress and trauma. So after the DSM-1 is written, there's this big period of peace where there aren't as many major wars. So the DSM-2 comes out, gross stress reactions, just like gone. There's no explanation. Never mind. Everyone's fine. Yeah, they're like, we're fine. We're living in peace. (laughs) There's no official diagnosis for stress disorders between 1968 and 1980. I'm sorry. Period of 12 years where like people who have what we would now call PTSD. We're just like showing up in doctor's offices and they were like, I don't know, take some Valium. Right. But you could be diagnosed for being gay. <gasps> so like a lot, a lot of issues to uh, really grapple with in psychology around what. Addie, what if I'm both? <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> okay. So I think this brings us up to the moment in history that I am familiar with because I always associated PTSD as a diagnosis with the Vietnam War. And you're right. Oh, say it again. Say it again. You are right. (laughs) So gold star for Hannah. With the DSM-3, it's right when the Vietnam War has refocused attention on post-combat stress disorders. And like many things in psychology, this is thanks to activists. So activists did a lot of work to bring attention and notice to the fact that 
it's bad that there's an inequity created when you send men because this was a draft. So cis men um, were the ones being drafted and there are trans people in there, but for the, the military thought it was recruiting cis men off to war. And then you're not recognizing the psychiatric consequences or the need to provide treatment. So in the DSM-3, PTSD is introduced. It is categorized as an anxiety disorder. And as part of thinking about how to create the diagnosis, psychologists thought about three different things. So what is the stressor? What is um, the stressed? And what are the symptoms? So basically, what is the thing that is bad enough to be considered trauma? Who are the people who are being stressed by that? And then what are we going to consider symptoms? Can you give us an example? Like, can we put it into practice? So the way that the DSM-3 defined trauma was an event outside the range of the usual human experience that would be markedly distressing to almost anyone. Oh, sorry. This is so interesting, (laughs) right? This like idea that there is something called a normal human reaction. There is something called a normal range of human experience. And that normal range of experiences, which is obviously, we know, like, white supremacy and, like, cis-heteropatriarchy and, like, all of these, like, profound ableism and capitalism and, like, that that is somehow supposed to be a collectively non-traumatizing experience. Exactly. And... So I taught the psychology of stress and trauma one semester. And one of the things that you think about when you're teaching students what is trauma is like, what isn't trauma? And so something like saying, is it outside the range of usual human experience? If you look at statistics, rape is common. So does that mean it wouldn't count? I just have a really strong urge right now to go, Boo. I don't know at who. I guess at, like, historical psychologists. Right. And in some ways, what's interesting is as we'll get, as we'll keep going, we'll see how the definition gets more and more specific. And sometimes specificity isn't necessarily better. So you have the stressor, right? So outside the range of usual experience, the person So DSM-3 says there's no requirement of pre-existing normality. So it does recognize that there's some variance in vulnerability and resilience. And then in terms of the symptoms, it gives three categories. Re-experiencing, so sort of re-playing, thinking, intrusive memories about the trauma. What people call flashbacks, would that be that kind of thing? So yes, that is one example of um, re-experiencing. It's a pretty rare symptom compared to how it's portrayed in media in terms of what you actually see. The numbing of your emotional responses is another category. And then cognitive and autonomic symptoms. So the ways you're thinking and the ways your body is reacting. Oh, like how my brain is bad now. Hannah, your brain is not bad. I know. I joke. There's so much interesting stuff with brains and trauma and like how it affects your neurocircuitry and how it changes your thinking and how it changes how you are able to regulate your body's responses to anxiety. So you have DSM-3 and then 
people revise it because you're constantly sort of revising based on research around what's going on. And so the DSM-3 revised, what we see is people are broadening the definition of trauma. So this is both clinicians and researchers. So in the DSM-3R, the revised version, trauma is no longer so severe that it would produce symptoms in almost anyone. It's just like something that's really bad. The DSM-3R also emphasize the psychological nature of the stressor and minimize the physical components. So in terms of the symptoms, and it also expanded symptoms to have a stronger emphasis on dissociation and eliminated the acute form of the disorder. And this is where we start seeing the layers of theory come in because dissociation is really considered a psychoanalytic, psychodynamic bend to symptoms. There are, there are all these different ways of being a psychologist. So people coming from this one theoretical approach, sort of talking about the disorder and making it look more like how they think about mental health. Can I ask you to just quickly explain what dissociation is? It's a really hard question. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> could you just describe it? Like if I were dissociating right now, what would I be doing? You would sort of be checked out, but not like daydreaming. So now when we think about dissociation, we think about things like depersonalization. So feeling like you're not in your body or that you're like seeing yourself outside of your body, out of body experience kind of thing. There's also what we call derealization, which is like feeling like the world isn't real or like you're in a movie, like things the like sensations and sounds around you like don't quite feel right. But dissociation is a very complicated, confusing thing. Okay, let's get back to the DSM. Where are we at today in terms of how the DSM is talking about PTSD? So now we are on our fifth version. So we have the DSM-5. It came out in 2013. And there's been some really major changes to PTSD. So in the DSM-3 and 4, it's considered an anxiety disorder. In the DSM-5, it's considered part of the trauma and stressor-related disorders. So it's put in a whole new category, which has some really interesting theoretical considerations. Um, Most diagnoses don't require an explanation of where they come from. PTSD does, which is the T, right? The traumatic. (laughs) You put the T in PTSD. Yeah. What the DSM-5 does is it broadens what can be considered traumatic exposure. So the DSM-5 says trauma is defined as exposure to death, threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury, or actual or threatened sexual violence by direct exposure, witnessing in person, indirect exposure, So learning that a close relative or close friend was exposed to trauma. And if the, and then if it's indirect, if the event involved actual or threatened death, it has to be violent or accidental or repeated or extreme indirect exposure to aversive details of events in the course of your professional duties. So things like first responders, child protection workers, people who are like screening images of child sexual abuse material that gets circulated on the internet. It does not include indirect, non-professional, so not part of your work, media exposure. 
does not include indirect non-professional media exposure. So like just being a human in the world who like watches the news and it's terrible. Or not watching the towers fall on 9-11 or to use a modern, a very recent example, just watching the video of George Floyd's death doesn't technically meet criteria for trauma DSM-5. Okay, so still some real shortcomings in thinking about how, like, systemic oppression operates here. Yeah, and when you think of death, threat and death, actual or threat and serious injury, and actual or threat and sexual violence, a gap is emotional abuse and psychological abuse. Oh, my God, yeah. Mm. So in DSM-5, there are categories of symptoms. So you have intrusion symptoms, which are recurrent, involuntary, and intrusive distressing memories. So like if the the things about the trauma just seem like they keep popping into your head and you can't control or stop it, dreams. So it's not just nightmares, but if you're having recurrent dreams about the stressor or the trauma, that counts. Dissociative reactions. So this is flashbacks. I think sometimes we talk about flashbacks as like, it's like I'm watching it happen again. What we mean by flashbacks and like the DSM is if you are dissociated from the present and you think you are actually back there. So in the time of your trauma, so you are no longer in the present, you are in the past reacting as if you were in the moment of trauma. And then another symptom in this intrusive um, category is intense emotional activation when you are reminded of the trauma. Caps lock. Well, caps lock is actually going to be a little different, but it's, and then intense physical activation. So when the intrusive memory comes, you suddenly get really sad or angry and does then your heart start to race? Do your palms get sweaty? Do you, do you start to feel like you're going to throw up? So then there's also avoidance as a criteria. So for the intrusions, you have to have one of the symptoms. For avoidance, you have to have one of these, which is either avoiding internal reminders, so trying not to think or feel in ways that remind you of the trauma, or external reminders, so avoiding people, places, things, anything that could pull the trauma out for you. Then we have the negative alterations in cognition and mood. So these are things like not being able to remember all the details of the trauma, persistent or exaggerated negative beliefs or expectations about yourself, others, or the world. Huh. Whoa. Like, I am bad. The world is entirely dangerous. No one can be trusted. Distorted cognitions about the cause or consequences of the trauma. So this is really where we get into self-blame. Often people will really blame themselves for things that are not their fault. A persistent negative emotional state. So just like constantly being afraid or horrified or angry or feeling guilt or shame. Diminished interest or participation in things you used to enjoy. An inability to experience positive emotions. So suddenly feeling like it's a lot harder to feel happiness or love. And feeling detached or estranged from others. So like you just can't relate to people anymore. I just feel like this describes the majority of the people who I know and love. Is it just like where we're at in society? 
it's interesting because like I have a lot of people in my life who have been through trauma I've been through trauma and so like yeah there is a level of a lot of people have some of these things I think what I've seen from doing PTSD therapy is like some people like like PTSD is like a really like a really real and painful and terrible experience for people and so like it diagnoses are hard because it's categorical, right? Yes or no. But we all have levels of symptoms, right? So like there are days where like, if I did a quick screener, my like PTSD symptoms are higher than other days. And so thinking about this as more continuous in a spectrum can also be helpful. But again, like sometimes you just need to be able to say like, yes, this person has this thing. Mm-hmm. If If these are things that we do have one more category of symptoms. Oh no. Okay. And this is this is the Caplox symptom category. It's alterations in arousal and reactivity. So number one is irritable behavior and angry bursts. <laughs> oh, there we go. There's our caps lock. Harry. It's reckless and self-destructive behavior, hypervigilance, which I think is like should just be called mad eye moody. Literally constant vigilance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exaggerated startle response, problems with concentration, and sleep disturbance. And then there's a bunch of other stuff. So you symptoms have to persist for a month. It has to cause distress and impairment in your functioning, and you can't blame it on anything else. So that's those are the categories of PTSD and sort of the current psychological understanding. So what I'm hearing you describe, Addy, like a lot of these things we might recognize in ourselves and in our loved ones, in our close friends and and family members, but we can think about these as like a broad range of responses and experiences, but PTSD is like a like a super concentrated pool of these experiences or or responses. Yeah, so you would need at least one intrusion, at least one avoidance, one negative alteration or two negative alterations in cognition and mood and two of the alterations in arousal and reactivity. So like a lot of people might have like one or two of those or even a little bit here or there, but to have all of them, it really stacks up and takes a real toll on people's lives and really can impact relationships, cause relational distress, cause work distress, cause a whole host of problems in life and ways that people deserve care for so that they don't have to experience that. Well, I think at this point, Addie, we have so much excellent material here to help us think through what the heck is happening in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And in a lot of ways, I think maybe talking about Harry and the other characters like Umbridge might also help to crystallize some of these ideas that you've that you've shared with us. So what do you say, Hannah, Addie, should we move on to the next segment? Let's do it. Let's do it. Awesome. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, 
now that we've got a better understanding of PTSD and how it manifests, let's put this new perspective to work in owls. Okay, to start off, to sort of warm us up a bit, could you tell us a little bit more about those sticky notes? Like, just as you were reading through, like, what was popping out to you in those first few chapters that you were like, sticky, 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 sticky? Yes. A lot of anger and irritability. So we, like, I think especially in the beginning of the book, Harry is caps locks Harry. He is yelling at everyone. And that kind of anger and irritability is pretty characteristic in people with PTSD. Yeah. The book even makes a point of making it clear that he, like, doesn't have control over it. That, like, because we're seeing things through Harry's perspective, we can see him, like, experiencing that anger, wanting to fight it, watching how it affects the people around him, knowing that it makes them scared of him, and still not being able to help himself. Yeah. I think we also see examples of avoidance. So Harry will start to think about Cedric and Cedric's death and then sort of immediately tell himself, no, don't think about that. Stop. That would be an example of avoidance of internal trauma cues, avoiding the memories, avoiding the feelings. He's having nightmares um, about Cedric, which Dudley then teases him about, right? By being like, is Cedric your boyfriend? And he's like, Ooh, so like we know he's having nightmares frequently enough that other people are noticing and not doing anything about it. Not only not doing anything about it, but reactively reinforcing the messaging he has clearly already gotten, which is that he should be ashamed of the fact that he has not like 100% gotten over what happened to him. Yes. And... This is what can be really complicated about PTSD. It can make people feel like they are incompetent. Research shows that most of us will experience something that counts as a trauma. It's something like 80 to 90% of us will experience it. Oh my God. What is that? What is the life of that other 10% like? I know, right? Wow. Wow. Anyway. But of everyone who experiences trauma, maybe 10% go on to develop PTSD. And so there's a natural sort of extinction of symptoms that happens, which is why PTSD takes a month to diagnose. You want to see if the symptoms will sort of go away on their own or if you're going to need a little help. And so the book actually is very clear. It says it's been four weeks since he got back to the Dursleys. I'm like, someone. (laughs) Somebody checked the DSM out of the library to write this book. You know, which I was like, one of those things, I was like, wow, that is really on the nose. Also, how short are their summer breaks? He only has a month off of school. Like, okay. <laughs> so we're seeing avoidance. We, we can see how Harry thinks badly of himself, how he sort of has internalized things around. It was his fault that Cedric has died. It's because of his actions. Which we would say, like, no, Harry, like, the person responsible for killing Cedric is the one who shot him with the killing curse. But that's not something he is understanding about his experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The other moment before we get back to Hogwarts and really start to see Hogwarts' failed infrastructure in action 
is like, okay, so we've got Harry spending a month after this traumatic experience. Like nobody talks to him about it, really. Nobody helps him process it. And then they just shove him back with the abusive family that he has been living with. So obviously like the worst possible environment in which to attempt to heal because he is not allowed to talk about anything that happens to him at school while he is there. And he is actively bullied by people noticing his trauma experiences. So obviously not a great place to recover. But then he is rescued by the Order of the Phoenix. Like they come in the night and they take him away to Grimmauld Place and he is suddenly surrounded by adults who we are being encouraged to read as the good and safe adults in his life, right? Like Mr. and Mrs. Weasley who actively take care of him and Sirius Black who is his godfather. And not only do none of them seem to do anything to help Harry. I mean, they try to protect him. You know, they do try to take better care of him, but they certainly don't, like, even offer him the opportunity to, like, talk about what happened. But I think that there is also a lot going on in Grimmauld Place that reminds us that these adult characters are, like, in their 30s. Like, they're our age. And they lived through a horrifying war in which so many, I mean, that moment where um, uh, Mad-Eye Moody brings the picture and Harry's like, oh, you thought I would like this picture where I see everybody who died last time? You thought this was a cool picture that I would be into? Like everybody, all of the adults are so clearly traumatized. And I think if that felt like subtext, it is made extremely text in the moment where Mrs. Weasley has that breakdown, seeing the Boggart appear as all of her family members. Because, like, her brothers died in the last war. And I think what we also see in Grimald Place is a culture of PTSD symptoms, right? So we see this culture of avoidance where no one talks about Percy because it would feel bad and we have to avoid feeling bad. We see a culture of like intense hypervigilance, right? Of like intense security, this idea that yes, the world is dangerous to the point where like all the food we eat here, we maybe should be testing for poison. Like Mad-Eye is like constantly looking at his food before he eats it. We see a lot of these symptoms almost normalized, right? And even to your point, Hannah, around putting him back in the Dursleys, like part of why that's so bad is because it forces avoidance. Avoidance is often what maintains PTSD symptoms because it prevents learning. So it prevents you from learning, oh, like it's okay to feel sad. That feeling's going to go away. It's okay to feel anxious that feeling's going to go away. If you tell, like, if you tell someone who's safe, like if Harry was able to tell someone, I can't stop thinking about Cedric's death and how it's my fault. And maybe someone would then say to him, Harry, like, I don't think that's your fault. Like then he's getting some evidence to disconfirm those thoughts he's having. So he's staying so stuck in all his symptoms. And then even the safe adults don't have the skills 
to combat those symptoms. And I suspect part of that is sort of a British cultural response as well. Like the stiff upper lip thing is genuinely a cultural norm in the UK of like, oh, we don't talk about it. We just never talk about it. We never, ever talk about things that happen. We just power through. And we see that in Molly that she's like breaking down and she keeps saying that she's just being silly. I'm just being silly. Like Molly as I think the closest thing we have to somebody who is actively working to nurture the people around her not only thinks that her own grief is silly and should be is like, you know, a bother and should be pushed aside and and doesn't deserve to have space. But she also clearly thinks that the best thing she can do for these children who are unavoidably entangled in everything that is happening is to shield them from it. She wants them out of the room. And that she thinks her reactions are silly. If I were if I were seeing her for like cognitive processing therapy, I might call that what we call a stuck point. Like you think that your symptoms are silly. What is that? What does that mean? You then think about yourself and how do those beliefs about the self maintain your own symptoms? I might want to work with her on like, what would it mean to recognize that this is a valid response to what you've been through? And what can you tell yourself so you're not making yourself then feel bad for having a reaction to terrible things? And what what is she teaching the children around her when that's how they see her responding to herself? Like it certainly says crying's not okay. No crying allowed. And then also like the layers of gendered expectations, which like comes up so often when you talk about symptoms and therapy where it's like, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. Like other people need me more. So like my own needs don't matter, which is very much something that people who are like socialized as women experience. And it's like, okay, like what would it mean then for you to take time and care about yourself? Okay. Well, Addie, talk to us about Umbridge because you raised some really, really interesting points about how she functions in the text. Umbridge reminds me of someone who learned therapy language and then uses it to be abusive. People do that. And I am specifically thinking about that first class where she's explaining to them why they don't need to learn how to do spells. Because on some level, what she is saying is in this classroom, you are safe. You do not need to have to defend yourself in this classroom, right? She literally says to Harry, like, do you expect to be attacked here? And on some level, that is what you are doing when you're doing PTSD treatment. You're helping people relearn what safety is. Um, The metaphor I use with clients is after experiencing trauma, we're like a smoke detector. And one of those sort of really sensitive ones where you put something in the toaster and it goes off when you take a hot shower and it goes off because something unspeakably awful has happened. And now your body is trying to protect you from ever experiencing that again. So you're constantly being told like, this isn't safe. This isn't safe. Even when you might be safe because your, your body's smoke detector doesn't want to miss the fire. And so you have to relearn what safety is. 
And so on some level, what she's saying is correct, right? Like he is sort of scare quotes, like safe in his classroom, right? Like this is not a space where he is going to be attacked by Voldemort. And yet it's not a safe space, right? And so it's it's this really complicated thing that I was reading, thinking about being like, wow, like there's a lot of language here that does have this sort of truth to it. But the way she's using it is despicable, right? Because she's not just saying, this is a place you are safe. She's not just saying it, it would be safe to go to a restaurant and not sit with your back to the wall. What she's saying is, everything in the world is safe because that like Voldemort isn't back and that's wrong. Yeah. She's saying the thing that has made you feel afraid in this otherwise safe environment is incorrect. Not like you're safe now, but like you are wrong to have ever been afraid. Exactly. And so what would it be like if they had like I don't know, a professional development for all of the professors who could then work on establishing like, yes, like there are very dangerous things in the world. The probability of them happening in this classroom is low. So we can work towards safety here while preparing you for what could be dangerous in the world. I mean, let's look back at the one good professor we ever see, Lupin who literally creates this environment of managed risk so that he can help his students practice responding to potentially traumatizing encounters and learning in an environment in which it actually is safe and he can prove to them, you are actually safe here. If things get out of control, I am able to step in and intervene. And in that safe environment, they can practice so that when they do then have those real encounters, their nervous systems are more regulated and they're more able to actually respond. Like, he's actually teaching them. And you can't use skills if you don't practice them. In the therapy room, you are teaching people in an environment of safety, in an environment of like, not always relaxation, but probably less activation, how to use specific cognitive skills or behavioral skills so that when they are in the rest of their life, outside the one hour of the week that they see you, when something happens and their symptoms kick up and they go into fight or flight, they are more able to use the skills, right? Because part of fight or flight is your prefrontal cortex shuts down. You can't make those same kinds of executive functioning decisions. So it needs to become more of a muscle memory. And so you need to practice in safety so you can use it when you are activated. And so we see Harry modeling Lupin's method of teaching, right? So the room of requirement is that safe space. Like the way that he's explaining to them about how Patronuses work, you know, he's like in a real encounter with a Dementor, you will feel very different, but we're going to practice here and now so that you know what the process is. Yeah. So you can use it more effectively when it's going to be harder, right? That these are things that aren't going to be easy. So if you do it enough, it'll come to hand quicker than potentially maladaptive ways of coping in moments of crisis. Okay, I want to put a pin in Harry's maladaptive ways of coping with crisis because I think that is what gets us to like the climax of this book. But thinking about 
the ways you've been talking, Addie, about like treatment that is based on sort of repeating things and practicing things and doing things over and over again, because doing things over and over again sort of changes how your brain processes them, makes me think about Umbridge's physical abuse of Harry and how focused it is on the repetition of a damaging belief about himself that she forces him to reiterate over and over again until it literally physically changes his body. Yeah. Which I think can, in some ways we can think about what that would, how that mirrors childhood abuse and and maltreatment that when you are constantly told from a young age, you are bad, you deserve to be punished. There's something wrong with you it sinks in, it leaves a mark. And she is doing that to him now too. What? Cause I must not tell lies. Sort of the underlying message there is like, you are bad. You do not deserve goodness. Like you are inherently unsavable. And how does that then impact how he thinks about himself, how he blames himself how he immediately thinks he's the only one there in his defense and in the defense of those he loves, because when has anyone ever like helped him? I think it's amplified by Dumbledore's ignoring him throughout so much of the book. Can't deal with Dumbledore in this book. Like, I'm sorry, my dude. I know that you are like handling some complex situations, but you are a professional teacher, like a long-term professional teacher. You would think he would be even a scotch better. But also like a long-term professional teacher who has positioned himself as Harry's trusted source for information, for comfort, for support, for reassurance. And then just like, oh, it would be best if I just hung back. Like what? And someone Harry would probably have listened to if Dumbledore had said, it wasn't your fault. I was thinking like, earlier today, like if I were to work on Harry's belief that this was his fault, like what are the questions I would ask him? And it would be like, Harry'd be like, it's my fault Cedric died. Oh, so you killed him. No, but I told him to touch the cup with me. So you intended he was going to die when he touched the cup. Well, no. And like sort of working through that idea of like, so who's the one who's ultimately responsible? It's Voldemort. You never meant anything bad to happen. You didn't know at the time that the cup was a port key. Like, how do you have any blame here? How could you possibly have known? It's an absurd plot full of holes. Yes. And like, (laughs) I think he could have listened if Dumbledore had said that to him. Right? Like, I don't think he would listen to many people. But even thinking about the end of book five, right, where like Dumbledore sort of gives him this info dump about like why he was doing these things and sort of is like, it's not your fault that Sirius dies. Like that's what Harry needed about Cedric. Like this isn't your fault. You did not intend for Sirius to die when you went to the ministry. You, with the information you had at the time, you were making the best choices you had. Oh, I'm going to make myself emotional. But like, that's something so many clients need to hear that in the moment you did everything right, that like you kept yourself alive and you are here today. And that's not something people get to hear often. They hear it was your fault. You shouldn't have done that. You made a bad choice. Or because of what happened afterwards, they go, 
I should have known that. Harry goes, I should have known it was Voldemort putting this idea in my mind. How could you have known, Harry? Yeah. As we are talking, I am thinking about another possible way of reading Harry's lessons with Snape, his occlumency lessons, because I think there's one way of reading sort of Voldemort's presence in Harry's mind as a kind of like invasive thinking that is obviously damaging him and that we could think of occlumency as basically being Dumbledore like sending Harry to a therapist, being like, you're having invasive thoughts, they are bad and dangerous, I know somebody who specializes in that, he can help you get rid of them via practice. And so he goes to therapy with Snape. Which, if we read it that way, is like extra infuriating to me because the therapeutic alliance, the relationship between the therapist and the client is one of the best predictors of outcome. That if there is trust, if there is care there, like in research, that is like honestly what does a lot of the work most of the time. And so Dumbledore is knowingly sending him to someone who despises him, who cannot be an adult and treat him with kindness and care, even as he's trying to teach him that. Like, if Snape is his therapist, imagine how damaging it would be to go to a therapist who is, like, sneering and hating you while you are trying to process your trauma. I mean, we don't have to imagine the book literally shows us. Right. He is sent to this person who is supposed to help him. And that person hates him and he hates that person. And there's no trust in their relationship. And so he doesn't do the work, stops practicing and is actively endangered as a result. And like everybody keeps saying to him, no, Harry, you have to keep going to the lessons. You have to learn this. You have to do this thing. And nobody seems to consider the fact that. That is impossible for him to do because how could he possibly learn how to like do this really hard thing of like keeping these invasive thoughts out when the person who is teaching him hates him? Yes. And I think this is also like if we were going to think about psychology for a moment, like why it is so important for psychologists to work on understanding systemic oppression because not work to be aware of your own biases, your own like internalized negative beliefs about others because of the different axes of identity and social location, you will be a Snape to one of your clients. That's right. Yeah. On that cheerful note. (laughs) I have a question. I'm not sure if I'm remembering the book wrong. There's this part of me that seems to recall that once Voldemort starts practicing occlumency, against Harry so that Harry can no longer invade Voldemort's dreams and thoughts and whatnot, that what we in our conversation are calling Harry's PTSD symptoms sort of lift. They they seem to kind of disappear. Does the book then just like whip that away and be like, no, nah, it was Voldemort the whole time? Does it like Scooby-Doo Voldemort? <laughs> Rip the mask off PTSD and don't worry, it's not real. It was just an evil wizard. I think in some ways that reminds me of your episode, Werewolves, a Metaphor, right? Where like, if you look at the metaphor a little deeper, it's like, oh, actually PTSD is caused by an evil dark wizard trying to control your mind. Like, 
right? If the intrusions go away, when Voldemort goes away, like, what is that actually saying, right? Because intrusions happen. It is not a personal failing. And with with treatment, you can often reduce them and learn how to respond in the moment when that happens. But like being able to Scooby-Doo them away is actually some pretty toxic, can I curse? Can I say bullshit? Yeah, Yeah. please, yes. Like some really toxic bullshit of like, you're not actually mentally ill. It's just the evil wizard. And like, that's gross. And the only treatment that Harry is offered is essentially blocking out. Yeah. Here's the good thing you can do is shut this out even more. Yeah. Very quickly, can I offer a spicy take on Thestrals? Yes. Oh, yes. I have a Thestral theory. There's been a whole lot of debate in fandom about like, why can Harry only start seeing the Thestrals now? Like, didn't he see other people die? Like, what about Quirrell? What about his parents? And I think there is some significant textual evidence that... Oh, you speak. Those are our magic words. <laughs> that while he has experienced traumatic, like potentially traumatic events and witnessed death before this book, it is the death of Cedric that is what we would call the index trauma for his PTSD. That that is the event that he is sort of, all of these symptoms are built upon. That it, he's, he's not having intrusive symptoms in this book of his parents' death or of quarrel. He's having it about Cedric. The dreams are rooted in Cedric. A lot of the self-blame is rooted in Cedric. And so I wonder, do the Thestrals become visible because he has sort of exceeded his ability to cope with all of the trauma he has been through? Mm -hmm. And that would really help to explain Neville, because Neville is established as a character who can also see the Thestrals. And then when we follow up, it was like an uncle or something. It's like great uncle Alfie. And at the same time, what this book does narratively, right, is it gives us that right at the beginning, this like, oh, Neville has also experienced trauma. He's being aligned with Luna and Harry. And then later on, the book reveals what that trauma is. And it's not actually his great uncle's death. It's what happened to his parents, which is another thing that's like, a really terrible trauma that Neville never talks about and nobody knows anything about because all anybody does is avoid. And when they are in that moment where, like, he has the opportunity to, like, talk with Harry and Hermione and Ron in front of his grandmother, his grandmother, like, chastises him for the way that he has been coping with his trauma instead of being like, oh, Neville, you can talk to your friends. She's like, I can't believe you wouldn't talk to your friends about this. Yeah, yeah. So... There's the feminist theory of counseling, which says that like symptoms are coping strategies that no longer work. So it places the pathology in society rather than the individual. And I think that's what we see with so many of these characters, that they have been taught nothing and been given no support about how to deal with anything they've been through. So they have all these things they do that keep them somewhat held together with like duct tape and a prayer and like... Is it always effective or adaptive? Like, maybe not, but what else are they going to be doing? No one's giving them any better option. Yeah. And the closest I think that we get to an admission of that is that final scene with Dumbledore and Harry talking, where Harry is once more taking on this responsibility of like, 
I am the one who Voldemort tricked. I am the one who convinced everybody to go to the ministry. I am the one who initiated this conflict. I am responsible for Sirius's death. And what we're seeing at work is like, well, or what we saw at work in Harry's reactions, like his decision to go to the ministry is Harry's coping strategy. Like the way that he has figured out how to deal with this incredibly frightening situation that he's in is like, oh, actually, adults are not there for me. I can't go to or trust anyone. I can trust only myself and Ron and Hermione. Those are the only people he's ever had proof, like, are there for him. And so that's how he's going to react. And then, you know, that was his his not great coping strategy. And Dumbledore does kind of say, like, it's not your fault that that was your shitty coping strategy. I have let you down. Hearing you say that, the other thing that comes to mind is he's also saying it's not your fault for existing, right? It comes back to it was Voldemort's choice to pick you and that it is not actually anything about you. It is about Voldemort's decision. Oh, that's so important that it wasn't him fated. It was that a terrible person chose to do something bad to him. Yeah, which I think at the root of so many people's trauma is someone made a terrible choice to do something bad to you. Y'all, this this book was so much sadder on a reread as an adult because it is a book about a bunch of children who desperately need somebody in their life to be like, hey, 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 now, you're not okay. You need help. Right? Like, let's get some group therapy at Hogwarts. Let's get let's get any kind of, like, behavioral or mental health at Hogwarts. Like, Just, and not only at Hogwarts, but also for all these adults. Like, it appears that being a wizard is traumatizing, which, not surprising, it's if this is their educational institution. I have a I have a sticky note in my copy of this book that says, see the sharing place. And I was like, what's that? And I remembered there was a, I can't remember if it was This American Life or if it was Wiretap or maybe it was both, but it was an episode where Jonathan Goldstein like goes to this organization called The Sharing Place, which is uh, an organization in the U.S. where children who have experienced like a trauma, a major, a major loss or grief, like go to get support. Like these children are able to learn how to like process their grief in healthy ways. And a big part of it is sharing with one another. And I'm just like, oh, this is what's missing. <laughs> this like the room of requirement and Dumbledore's army is like the closest thing that these guys, that these children are going to get to sharing their grief with one another. And that by sharing and engaging in community, you can learn that you're not alone, that you're not to blame, that you are lovable, which are things that are often really interrupted by trauma. And that we see coming out of the sharing they do in the room of requirement when Harry says, no, I can't trust or rely or draw on anybody else. And his friends say, too bad, we're coming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In conclusion, we can think about the power of community to help us and help us cope with the terrible things we've been through. And I think the Harry Potter fandom, the witch please community that we can, you know, rely on each other for care and support um, can be a really important takeaway um, and a way for us to 
continue moving through this very difficult and challenging world. Well, thank you for being part of that community, Addie. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch, Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to NotSorryWorks.com or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at AWitchPlease, where you can also find the links to our new store. And if you want to follow Addie's extremely professional Twitter, you can do so at A-N- M-E-R-I-A-N-S. <laughs> was that helpful? Was that a helpful way to read that? When I was learning how to spell my last name, my mom would sing it to Doa Deer. So, you know, any way you can do it. M-E-R-I-A-N-S. That is where you find Eddie. Which Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. Five stars only, so not that person who recently left us a two-star review. Rude. Not very kind. They're mad because there's too much feminism. So, you've got to review us if you want to hear Marcel conduct herself with the confidence of a mediocre white man as she attempts to read your usernames. Thanks this week to Leanne Gale, Team Stewart, The Ums, Daniel Allen 96, I Like Trees and Bees, Me Too. Oh, this is a tough one. Okay, I was looking at this one earlier and I was like, nobody in particular? No. Part in nobody cooler. Part nobody cooler. No open office layouts. Chandler Swift. Sonnenblumen Hex. And Kali Wally Doodle, which makes me think of Kali Wally Doodle all the day. <laughs> Those are some good usernames. <laughs> and while I'm at it, Thank you to all of our wonderful Patreon supporters for making this show possible. We're recording this episode hard on the heels of a major boost in new patrons, and we just want to give you all a big witch please welcome. If you want to join the hollowed ranks and exercise the accompanying bragging rights, don't forget to head on over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease. We'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. But until then, later witches. <laughs>